welcome to episode 29 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the Canadian Armed Forces strategy to eradicate hateful conduct within the ranks. We also cover how the military can counter disinformation during the pandemic and what a new Canadian foreign policy should look like. Our feature interview is with Professor Sarah Miriam Martin-Brulé from Bishop's University, an expert on the UN and peacekeeping intelligence. Listen to the very end of the show for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, you survived your camping adventure. Tell us a little about your, your time in the woods. Okay, okay. Yes, it was a fairly busy week. We first had a few days of car camping, but then I graduated to canoe camping. We did about uh, 20 hours of paddling in total, which I realize now was rather foolish because I can still feel it in my back several <laughs> days later. But the most painful part of the holiday is returning to an overflowing email inbox, something I'm sure you can relate to. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, whenever I go anyplace, I never leave my laptop behind. And I haven't done anything like canoeing, so I, I usually don't have a huge pile of email. Yeah, no. It, the digital detox did me some good, though, and I don't think it's a good idea to bring a laptop in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Steve, while I was away, you were working on a CDSN teaching workshop? Yes. What happened was uh, a couple of weeks ago, or I guess it was last week, we organized a meeting it was an initiative, uh, actually, of Melissa Jennings, our, our communications director, and Barbara Falk, who is a professor at the Canadian Forces College. And the idea was that we're all going online in the fall. Do people have either strategies or lessons they've learned that, that help to work online? Or even better, do they have simulations, games, exercises, things that they do on a regular basis that they could share? And so we, we Zoomed last week. And what this is going to lead to is that we're going to have a teaching page on the CDSN website. Uh, there'll be closed access to some of the stuff that people uh, can't share or don't, don't want to share. There's some intellectual property involved. But a lot of the stuff will be open so that any professor can come by and, and grab some of these either tips or resources and use them for their classes. And we were also tracking news items this week. We picked three in particular. One of them was the Canadian Armed Forces issuing new orders to eradicate hateful conduct in the ranks. Mm -hmm. So the Canadian Armed Forces has been pretty focused on misconduct and misconduct had been defined before, but not hateful conduct specifically. The definition that is included in the new orders refers to acts by a CAF member that promotes violence or hatred against a person or group based on their identity. And I'm paraphrasing here because the actual definition is way longer. So how will the military tackle hateful conduct moving forward, Steve? Well, I think the key thing is it's, it's going to put a requirement on people in the forces to report when they see hateful conduct. And so that's going to put a real onus on members of the military to be aware and to report. And so that should deter people from engaging in hateful conduct. Now, it won't, engage, it won't deter people from joining who have hateful thoughts and are, are joining the military to develop you know, knowledge that they can use for their extremism. 
but we don't have hate, you know, we don't have a uh, thought police, so we can't get at that. But I do think this is uh, significant. The question is, what are the consequences? Because thus far in the past uh, couple of years, when there have been reports of people engaged in hateful conduct, it's not clear that they've been kicked out of the military. It seems like they've mostly been admonished and warned. And so I'm not exactly sure from the initial reporting what are the stakes involved for those who are reported. Uh, right now, it seems more clear that there's going to be higher stakes for those who, do, who don't report. Uh, I think it's improvement, particularly having a clearer definition. And it's pretty expansive to include all different kinds of, of identities, which I think is appropriate. But I'm not sure exactly, again, what the consequences are. And so if it doesn't have teeth, I'm not sure if it matters. But if it does have teeth, then I think this is, uh, is an important addition. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so there's the, the reporting requirement. There's the emphasis on, on superiors or leaders having to take action when receiving reports uh, or, or face repercussions for failing to act. Uh, a few other things that caught my eye were the, the database to track incidents, mm -hmm. the introduction of new training, which is expected. It seems that every problem is tackled through the development of new training. Uh, and then the screening for new recruits that is still in development. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but coming back to the database to track incidents for, for just a little moment from a research perspective, I think that it's interesting to see this new system being put in place. They will be doing this with the support of one of the new MINDS networks, which is called the Network for Research on Hateful Conduct and Right-Wing Extremism in the CAF. So they will act as subject matter experts in this effort. You may recall that from the last call for funding that the MINDS program put out, uh, one of the challenge areas or one of the priority areas was addressing and preventing hateful conduct and radicalization. And then finally, if I can just allow myself one more comment about this, it's how the CAF statements are framed. Hateful conduct is sort of described as undermining the CAF's operational effectiveness. And I would really like to see more emphasis on the harm this causes to fellow service members, especially racialized members of the CAF, and how this ties in more broadly to concerns of systemic racism within the CAF. So I'm always a little bit on guard when I see this whole uh, problem couched in terms of, you know, we have to be, do better on hateful conduct because it undermines our operational effectiveness and our activities at home and abroad. Yeah, and I think... You know, given that the, one of the priorities that the forces have had is to have a more diverse force, I do think that it's not just about effectiveness, it's about recruitment and retention of women and of, of racialized minorities to the force, because why would you want to join a, a, a military if it's stocked with people who hate you and who are, feel comfortable in expressing their hate for you? So I, again, that's more of a, a, a justification because it's, it's, a good, it's, it's good for the force as opposed to you know, what is good for the individuals inside, but this is obviously a multidimensional thing. But this is clearly a priority that the Vance has. I talked with David Hoffman, who's one of the co-PIs of the co-directors of this, of this new network. And it was very clear from the inclusion of, of hateful conduct in the call, the, the challenge that D&D uh, &D was uh, seeking to have answered by the network competition. And it's clear that, that they got funded, that this is a, a real priority. But I do think it's good that this new policy has in its inception uh, linkages beyond the military to experts in this area because the military is not an expert in, in this kind of stuff and they need to have uh, on board folks who have been studying the stuff extensively and so to have that built in as opposed to something layered on 
later on, I think is a real improvement. And I think it's a very useful way for the Mines Network program to go is to have have this new network be focused on something that is a very clear priority for the military these days. Yes. Another story we were tracking is that the Canadian Armed Forces were accused of developing a propaganda campaign, essentially, <laughs> to prevent civil disobedience by Canadians during the pandemic. What were your thoughts on that story? Yeah, I, this is a really interesting story. I think there's something to it, but I also think there's a chance to be, for it to be overblown. The larger context is who in Canada is responsible for, for dealing with disinformation campaigns. Over the past five years, at least, the Russians and the Chinese have engaged in extensive disinformation or misinformation campaigns against democratic publics. We saw this with Brexit. We saw this with the election of 2016 in the United States. We've seen that with the pandemic, that apparently 50% of all of the social media posts in the United States that relate to anti-mask behavior come from outside the United States, essentially come from the Russians. And so there's this larger question of, of who's responsible for handling that. And it may not be the military's job to deal with that, but I'm not sure who else in government is supposed to deal with that. So that's the larger context. The, the more narrow context for this is military's plan planners plan and they consider all kinds of things. And so you had some people planning how to present information to the Canadian public to deal with the disinformation coming from wherever. That turns out most of that now is coming from the president of the United States, which is a mm. different kind of challenge. And it's interesting that Rouleau, uh, Mike Rouleau, the, who was the head of CJOC, that's the command and responsible for operations in Canada and outside of Canada, was, the, was where this was coming from. And now he's the vice chief of defense staff. But as soon as it got to Vance's desk, he killed it because I think he saw that it was going to get bad media coverage and, and raises questions about what is the proper role of, of the Canadian military in Canada. So what are your first reactions to this, Steph? I was trying to, and this is not my field necessarily, but I was trying to get a better grasp on what information operations are and what they're meant to, to cover. And my understanding was that they're typically used abroad and can imply two things. One, the collecting of information about the enemy, but also influencing targeted audiences with pro propaganda. And I think it's this part that is controversial here. These tactics are usually not intended to be used on the Canadian populations. So it's a matter of what tactics are acceptable domestically versus abroad in the context of operations. Obviously, the military can communicate with the Canadian public and they have a whole public affairs branch to do so. But that's very different from launching an info ops campaign in the country that would involve influence activities on the Canadian public. And I guess my, th my, my thing about this is if you're presenting the realities of a situation to offset the disinformation campaign from someplace else, is that propaganda? Is that providing clear information to the Canadian public? Because some of this stuff is just the realm of facts and some of the stuff is the realm of, of other stuff. And if, if you're getting disinformation from the Russians that are trying to persuade Canadians of fiction, is it problematic for the government to present the facts? And then the question becomes, is it problematic for the military to be one of the agents involved in doing that? Because again, the challenge is, what other parts of government have personnel, training, equipment, doctrine, yada, 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 for communicating to the Canadian public? Most of the government agencies I know are afraid to communicate. So I doubt that they actually have well-worked staff and, and equipment and, and stuff to, to send out messages. I think we've seen the Public Health Agency of Canada not do that great of a job of, of in, information management. 
you would think in this kind of crisis it would be their job to do it, but if they're not equipped to do it, then the question becomes, do we not do it, or is it, the, or does the military give assets and personnel to PHAC, the Public Health Agency of Canada, to, to do the work? I don't think there's anything to suggest here that the Canadian Armed Forces were called upon to assist civilian authorities in that area to support the communications piece. And the Canadian Forces might want also to focus countering misinformation to targeted info ops in their operations abroad, uh, because I think that in some of our other operational settings in, in other countries, misinformation about the virus uh, was also an issue and affected the activities of the troops specifically, you know, from South Sudan to Latvia. So, you know, I definitely understand the need to do that abroad, but I, I think domestically, I think it, it's important to raise the question of whether or not the Canadian Armed Forces are needed to step in uh, in terms of actively countering misinformation. One of the things that we developed in our April briefing note that we gave the government, uh, we thought that the Canadian Forces should come up with some the rules of engagement. What it was it they can and cannot do in Canada? And then make that public so that way mayors, city officials, provincial officials could know what the Canadian Forces are doing. For instance, in the articles I've seen the past few days about this, you know, we keep on seeing the, the, the particular phrase of, well, there are 24,000 troops are mobilized for this, but only 1,600 were sent into the elder care facility. And that suggests that the other 22,400 were doing nothing for the pandemic. And I think that there's probably something in between nothing and sending people into the elder care facilities, that there were units that were doing some things in support of some provinces and some localities. So it's not just 1,600 troops that were being involved with it, but more than that. So I think that's uh, something that needs to be communicated. But I think you're right that this is probably something that could be left to the public affairs branch of the forces more so than the people who are more directly involved in information operations. And we had a final item to discuss today, and it's on foreign policy. So I think that in one of our previous episodes, Steve, we talked about whether or not a foreign policy review was needed. And so this is still very much talked about. And there was a piece over the weekend by John Ibbotson called The Old Order Doesn't Fit Our New World. And he presents a group of early and mid-career scholars as realists. Uh, I happen to be <laughs> one of them. But there are other co-directors uh, beside me from the CDSN, like Andrea Sharon from the University of Manitoba and Jean-Christophe Boucher from the University of Calgary. Ibbotson says, we need to listen to the realists who are urging a tougher, more self-interested foreign policy for Canada. I don't know that everyone included in the article would self-identify as a realist, but I think we have all borrowed from this approach in our work at one time or another. And the question Ibbotson asked us over the phone is essentially this, can the current international order be saved or do we have to build a new one from scratch? If you had been asked this question, Steve, what would you have answered? Well, since I'm not a realist, I would have said that the international order isn't gone yet, that most institutions still exist, and the question is whether we can do stuff to fix them. One of the basic liberal arguments, big L liberal, not, not politics liberal, but liberal, liberal political thought, is that it's really hard to build institutions from scratch. And so it makes sense then to, to take the ones that exist and adapt them. So NATO, for instance, went from confronting the Soviet Union to doing peacekeeping operations, to doing counterinsurgency, to confronting the Russians, essentially. And it, so it, it changed over the course of time because it, it's hard to build a new alliance out of, out of nothing. 
And so the question is, is the World Bank irrelevant these days? Is the International Monetary Fund irrelevant these days? NATO irrelevant these days? Is there stuff to build on? And so every institution has its problems, but I think that it's far easier to adapt them and reform them. And so I think, is the international liberal order in trouble? Certainly. But most countries are still not engaged in full-fledged trade wars. Most of the members of the World Trade Organization are not engaged in trade wars. The United States is instigating them, but not everybody is engaged in them. And if you go through all the different bits and pieces of the liberal international order, a lot of them still matter quite quite a bit. So the question is how to salvage them and what is Canada's role in this? And I think this leads to something that we need to be take seriously, which is humility. Canada is not a particularly powerful country. Yes, it's a top 10, top 15 economy, but we've got a relatively small population that's not willing to pay a lot of taxes uh, for foreign affairs. And we're far away from most of the places that matter. And so we have some leeway, we have some influence, but we can't build institutions on our own. And the idea that we can we can operate on our, our own without institutions is, is really problematic because Canada really benefits from a rule-based order. And it's going to be very hard to, to do what other countries ask. For instance, do we want to become Australia? And that would require us to double our the size of our military. I, I don't think that that's likely. So that's my initial pitch. What was what did you say in the article? And if you knew you were going to be misquoted, what would you prefer to say? <laughs> no, no, I had a very short quote. But what I said in the article is that Canada has to be more pragmatic about picking its partners and picking its issues. And I think this is a lesson we learned the hard way because of an increasingly tense partnership with the U.S. and a now overtly hostile relationship with China. So when I think back to the government's attempt to develop a new defense policy, and we were both part of that process, Steve, or when I think about the early foreign policy goals that were articulated when Trudeau was first elected, it's clear that Canada's agenda was overtaken by events. So to me, the question then becomes not so much about, you know, will the current order continue to exist or do we have to start a new one from scratch, but can we build as Canadians a coherent foreign and defense policy that will withstand some of these types of shocks. Another factor which is not mentioned in the article relates to domestic societal factors, which typically would not be considered by realists so much, except maybe for neoclassical realists. But let's not get too deep into IR theory. Domestically, Canadians' perceptions of China are increasingly negative. So I definitely don't think that this is a development that we can ignore. The idea that we could shape China's behavior through trade and diplomatic engagement has proven to be naive, and I think that there's a growing realization of, of that. China's human rights record is still appalling, and internationally, it's hardening its stance. So since there's no real attempt to confront China on what it does domestically or internationally for, from Canada or from anyone else, really, I suppose we have a strategy of containment by default, and that's going to significantly shape the range of our choices. I also saw, Steve, like you, this call for greater self-reliance and the comparison with Australia. But uh, as you pointed out, this is going to be hugely expensive. So probably unlikely in the current fiscal climate and, and the budgetary constraint that we're facing post-COVID. So yeah, that's that's the take. I, I enjoyed the article. I enjoyed seeing what my peers had to say about it. And I think that Ibbotson's attempt was really to focus on more junior and mid-career scholars. So typically we, we tend to see the same names in the paper quoted in these types of articles. So it was nice to see, you know, kind of the, some of the, the newer profs in IR and then some of the colleagues that I did my PhD with, you know, around the same time, like uh, JC Bouchy and Andrea Charan, Jonathan Paquin. And so Justin. all you young kids, not any old folks, no gray beards like myself were involved. 
Well, you know, it's not like you don't get enough exposure, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I appreciated having the youngsters involved and and the mid-career folks. I I think that was really good. Uh, I think the media tends to focus on the usual names. That was not my problem with the piece. My problem with the piece was sort of a a narrow vision of what, how other people can think about this, that that it's a usual tactic of realists to say that nobody else thinks realistically. They got the best name for their theory. And so... I think liberals, liberal IR theorists like myself, can't take seriously that countries are self-interested and then go on from there to think about what that means, that liberals can be pragmatic too. There, we come all, in all kinds of flavors. I do think that the last 10 years should have taught liberals some humility about intervention, for instance, that I don't expect to see a whole lot more Afghanistans uh, in the future because we've learned that we're not very good at this kind of thing. Uh, and I don't think that's just a realist argument. I think that's that uh, liberals are also thinking that too. But that's an intra-IR debate that probably our <laughs> listeners are not so much interested in. So let's go to the question of the week, once again, offered by my sister. <laughs> um, and she asks us, should governments ban TikTok? Should companies ban TikTok? This comes out of a story where Amazon went back and forth on telling its staff that their intra email program would not work if they if people had TikTok on their on their phones because TikTok turns out to be not just handy for showing videos but it has all this stuff underneath that sends lots of information back to TikTok headquarters which happens to be in China. So how, do you have TikTok on your phone? Do your kids have TikTok? No, no, I don't have TikTok. My kids don't have a phone. They're still too young. I don't know. I'm just wondering are there serious security concerns or is just just geopolitics playing out in the tech world. If there is a genuine security concern, can that be fixed? Or then maybe just organizations can enforce policies for themselves. I saw that the U.S. Army and and Navy did this. They banned TikTok to their members on their government-issued devices. But what I really want is that the next time your sister asks a question, that we record her asking the question and we feature her on the show. You might find some resistance with her on that front. I do worry about TikTok because the studies thus far have shown that, it, that there's a whole lot of stuff going on under the surface besides just through plain videos. I really wish that Twitter hadn't killed Vine because Vine was a handy utility for displaying short videos. And instead, TikTok has now filled that gap. But I do think that uh, there's been enough study of it to suggest that technology itself is problematic. And so I'm not going to install TikTok anytime soon. And when I refrain from any kind of social media, you know there's something wrong with it. <laughs> That's true. Next up, we have an interview with Sarah Miriam Martin Brulé. She's an associate professor at Bishop's University. She's also a former student of yours, Steve. Yeah, she's one of my PhD students who's done good, not only done well, but done good. She's uh, been an advisor to the UN on peacekeeping operations. She's done extensive research, uh, field research in places that are most dangerous. I don't remember signing off on the research ethics boards reforms for <laughs> going to places like Somalia, but she's she's been to Ethiopia and West Africa and South Africa and has done really interesting work talking with military commanders, rebel leaders, refugees, and so I'm really quite proud of what she's doing. So I'm really glad you had a chance to talk to her. Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation about peacekeeping intelligence. It's not a world I know a ton about. So she really highlighted the main issues and concerns and has been involved in developing a handbook on peacekeeping intelligence for the UN. So she also speaks about that. Sarah Miriam also happens to be in the Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique. She is uh, on our leadership team. So I look forward to working even more closely with her in the future. Fantastic. I'm glad you survived your adventure in the wilderness. 
as always, wear a mask and wash your hands. <laughs> okay. Talk to you in August. I'm very happy to be welcoming Sarah Miriam Martin Brulé on Battle Rhythm today. She's a professor at Bishop's University and a leading expert on UN peacekeeping intelligence. I've also known Sarah Miriam for more than a decade as we did our PhD at around the same time in Montreal. Sarah Miriam, thanks for being on the show. How are you doing? I'm fine and thank you for having me. I'm so pleased that we found time to do this. I know it's uh, not easy. We're both juggling homeschooling and working from home. Uh, there are a lot of demands on your time. So let's get right to it. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about UN peacekeeping intelligence in this conversation. So before we get to the heart of the matter, can you just tell our audience what that covers exactly? What is peacekeeping intelligence and what are some intelligence challenges faced on UN operations? Yeah, that's an excellent question because intelligence is, is seen as an inherently sovereign matter. And it would seem quite uh, counterintuitive that state would wish to share secrets with all the other countries in the world. Yet, in the context of the United Nations, peacekeeping intelligence is thought as a way to enhance the treatment of information to uh, increase the security and safety of its personnel and also to enhance the protection of civilians. Up until 2017, the world intelligence was actually quite taboo at the UN and situational awareness would be used or the use of information. But the word intelligence has been adopted in order to refer to a way of treating the information. So going through the intelligence cycle from tasking to acquiring information, collecting data, evaluating data, doing the analysis, and disseminating the result of that analysis to support the senior leaders in, in mission. The main challenge uh, with intelligence at the UN was obviously the definition. What would a peacekeeping intelligence look like? How to define it? And member states did not agree. There are probably as many definitions of intelligence as there are member states. So the UN itself was quite hard-pressed to choose one definition over another and adopting the ways of one member state over another. So in 2017 and up until 2019, there were a lot of back and forth with the member states to find an acceptable definition and an acceptable way to define the principles that would gear intelligence in the organizations. It was decided that a peacekeeping intelligence would not be defined, should be left undefined. And there were different reasons for that. First of all, because again, intelligent, they wanted to mark the fact that intelligence at the UN was quite different from national intelligence. For example, national intelligence entails both classified information, but also some clandestine practices, which of course, that isn't very much antithetical to the organizations. Rather, they decided to put a hyphen between peacekeeping and intelligence to really mark and highlight and emphasize the fact intelligence would be different in, in the UN context. And instead of providing a definition, they decided to include seven principles in place of a definition that would guide the practice of peacekeeping intelligence. And those seven principles are that 
peacekeeping intelligence should be rule-based, non-clandestine, conducted within designated areas of application, obviously respectful of state sovereignty. It should be independent, executed by accountable and capable authorities, and it should be secure and confidential. A hyphen was also very much emphasized as the conditions under which the term could be used. So it's never just intelligence, it's always speaking peacekeeping hyphen intelligence that is used in the UN context. So it defines really the different steps in which uh, the intelligence cycle should be used within missions. Again, to increase situational awareness uh, and to support decision makers in taking actions to enhance the security and safety of its personnel and the protection of civilians. So I can certainly understand why that hyphen becomes all important in this context. And, and thank you for providing this overview. I think that intelligence conversations would look quite differently, whether you're talking about them in a UN context versus a NATO context versus a Five Eyes context. What sparked your interest in UN peacekeeping intelligence? Your previous research was on peace operations in fragile states. So I imagine that it's your interactions with the UN that led you down this particular path? It's my work on deterrence that actually sparked my interest for UN peacekeeping intelligence. And as you say, in my doctoral dissertation and then in the book, Evaluating Peacekeeping Missions that I published with Rutledge in 2017, I looked at uh, the conditions under which peace operations would succeed or fail in interstate wars. And I focus on two main questions. One was, what is peace operation success and what contributes to such outcome? And I argued that during a peace operation, the adoption of a deterrent strategy worked best for reestablishing order, while the involvement of a great power would actually facilitate the implementation of the mandate. And in that research, I found out that during a peace operations, a force capabilities matter, but opting for non-coercive means, so not using force was actually more effective. And that was very much based on that adoption of a deterrent strategy, which is a threat-based strategy. Yet a threat-based strategy obviously implies that you have the information, one would say the intelligence, to craft the right threat or the right menace to convince belligerents to change their behaviors. And I found out during my research and my, my doctoral dissertation was in that book, uh, the, the field work that I did back then was on the wars in uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone and Somalia. And comparing the settings, it was quite obvious that improved communication with the locals enhanced every aspect of interventions, making the use of force less necessary and actually when it was used more punctual and more effective. And it also, that type of approach of really focusing on improving the perception from the population to improving communication affected the legitimacy as well of the interveners. As I worked on deterrence, I didn't find any systematic work on how information on those belligerent was acquired, how information was shared or used by intervening forces, agencies, local security services. Also, back then, I was uh, a researcher on my own, and I was uh, traveling to those settings as I had my children, I decided to maybe find more uh, secure settings in which to pursue my research. I decided to focus more on the UN itself as an organization and focus on the mechanism that the UN was using to acquire that information, to make sense of it, 
and to act upon it. So it's a long answer <laughs> to tell you how my, my interest on peacekeeping intelligence started back then. But back then, my research, we talk about the years 2015, when I started really looking into the process of acquiring information by the UN and making sense of it. And my focus was on a unit called Joint Mission Analysis Centers. So the word is JMAC. And I started really focusing on those units who were central to the understanding of the settings in uh, UN peacekeeping missions. Yeah, you first introduced me to that topic. We co-organized a workshop several years back in Kingston in collaboration with Peace Support Center. And I remember I found this very interesting, especially because it's nice to do the parallel between the work that you do at the UN and the work that I do through NATO. So thank you for introducing me to this very interesting topic. And you've mentioned your academic research, but you've also written a handbook on UN peacekeeping intelligence, as well as another piece uh, recently for IPI on, on UN's, the UN's peacekeeping intelligence policy, which we'll include in the show notes. Why was there this demand for external expertise on intelligence at the UN? I think the need and uh, the expertise with the handbook, they wanted someone from the outside of the system who could adopt a comparative approach with no vested interest, uh, really, into different missions, who could carve time to write within very tight deadlines, who could identify common gaps and traps for the UN JMAC work. And also, I think for a handbook, there was the pedagogical aspect. So the fact that I was a professor at university also played in. I was also hired, I think, to do this work because I had been in the, in the field before. So I was hired in January 2017 to write the handbook. But prior to that, I had been a participant to the UN JMAC course in Norway in 2015. I had been doing field research on JMACs at the UNOC, which was the UN missions in Côte d'Ivoire in uh, April 2016. And I had come back as an observer to a second UN JMAC course in Norway in uh, November, December 2016. And I had done another field research at the MINUSCA. So that's the UN mission in Central African Republic. So I had a background on, on JMACs already as a researcher. When I was hired as a consultant, I was thus asked to put my reflection, academic reflection, in a more concrete and applied sense and continue the comparison. I thus went to the MONUSCO, so the, P the UN peacekeeping missions in, uh, in, in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo in April 2017, and then to the UN mission in Mali in May 2017, and then to the UN mission in South Sudan in June 2017 as well. Meaning that within the span of a year, a uh, year and a half, I had been to fire of the main peacekeeping missions, and I could compare within a similar period the different work of JMACs and also how each JMAC understood the JMAC policy from the UN headquarters. So I could compare different ways, different contexts, different uh, constraints of missions, different priorities of JMAC, depending on those contexts, but also different interpretations of uh, the headquarters policies. I like how earlier you mentioned that you transitioned your research after having your kids so that you could maybe travel less in volatile regions. But 
based on your last answer, uh, you've shared that you've really visited the, the main UN missions and that you've still been very much involved in, in fieldwork and in what most would consider to be challenging environments. Can you share with us what some of the most difficult situations you've faced on the ground have been? Well, I'm a civilian woman in academia hired as a consultant by the New York HQ. So all of these <laughs> key terms are actually entailing some challenges. So the first challenge is being an academic in a practitioner world. Even after writing the handbook, there's always the fear when uh, you meet people in mission that you will theorize on, on the field without even knowing anything about it. So there's always this perception that I would say negative about academics, even though you do field research, that you will not grasp the daily work of the practitioners on the ground, that you will just seek to apply theoretical concept, that it will remain really, very much abstract. So there's always this way of looking at academics as having difficulties in grasping the day-to-day -day work of practitioners. So that would be one first challenge. The second challenge is to be seen as a consultant uh, and hired from New York. There are three things I would say in that. First of all, the notion of consultant. So you're not from the UN system. And again, there's this perception that you're an outsider, that you don't get the games, the play, the dynamics, the politics within the organization, that you didn't necessarily earn your way to the job you're hired for, and that you're not necessarily competent to do it because you're not from within the system. So you didn't get to learn all the mechanism, the dynamics. So there there's kind of a suspicion that you don't really grasp what's happening. When you come from New York and you go to the field, there's also this perception or suspicions that you're there to assess the work. So not so much trying to understand the challenges and the gaps, which I was trying to do, but there's always this fear or this impression that you can give that you are assessing, that you're sent to evaluate, to grade even in a sense, <laughs> what's happening in the field. The fact that you are coming from New York as an outsider for a very short amount of time is also seen as suspicious mm -hmm. and quite frustrating by the people of the mission, I would say. And uh, you're there for only, what, 10 days, not even sometimes. It's hard for the people who are working in harsh conditions to see consultants coming for a very short amount of time and then pretend that they've understood everything, that they've seen everything and describe it to others as if they had lived there for six months, one year, for example. So there's also this credibility issue that is at stake. I would say that the more difficult the living conditions are for the practitioner underground, for the people you meet, the more likely you will not be well perceived. So I will say that in some missions, for example, I think South, South Sudan is certainly one in which the conditions are very harsh for the UN staff. And they live in a compound called UN House. And they obviously have curfews. The compound UN House is surrounded by POC, so protection of civilian camps of hundreds of thousands of refugees. There's obviously an atmosphere of insecurity, of very high pressure, personnel 
uh, work very long hours, almost seven days a week. There are all types of everyday hurdles, and we're not even talking about the weather and other types of insects that can come in the way, or, or sickness, which is obviously in the background all the time. But just in terms of the work, it's a very challenging work. When you come there as an academic chosen to be a consultant from New York for not even 10 days, you need to justify why you're there and how competent you are and how to justify how your work will actually reflect their own challenges. So that's certainly, these are all challenges. Again, and of course, <laughs> I'm a woman and gender also matters in those settings. These are settings that are highly insecure. Being a woman coming again from New York, you can, you're automatically perceived as someone who has no fieldwork experience. You really need to justify to tell your story again that you have done some fieldwork, so which, which I have done myself. But you're always perceived at first as someone to be protected. Hmm. There are many reasons for that. First of all, because you don't know the context. And it's important that someone warns you on the context. And as a woman, you have to take certain steps to make sure that you're secure. So there's an objective concern there of safety and security. But I think beyond that, again, there's a justification of why you're there, that you're adding a new burden for the people who are welcoming you in the missions that you need to be protected. As well, uh, the challenges include being mansplained often and being treated as someone who's in need of protection and do not necessarily grasp all the challenges and the difficulties uh, on the ground as well. And finally, and I mentioned it, the question of being a civilian versus a uniform staff. There's a challenge because there's often a perception by uniformed personnel that civilians are more disorganized, that they do not share the same rigor, that they don't understand the same jargon. So I think these uh, of being civilian women in academia hired as a consultant by New York <laughs> are all challenges that you meet when you, when you travel in those types of missions. And I'm sure each trip gets better in terms of knowing how to interact with people and knowing how to present your pitch to them on the ground and getting your work done. I think this is super valuable advice that you're sharing for young scholars who are also undertaking fieldwork in complex environments. Let's uh, talk for a moment about undergraduate students. Uh, so very different kind of advice here, I suppose, but you supervise the model UN delegation from, from bishops. So you do go to New York with your students to take part in these simulations. I want to know, and, and probably students who are considering maybe taking part in some of these simulations, how do these events contribute to learning about international politics and the UN? Well, supervising the model UN, uh, as it's called at Bishop, is, is really a great source of inspiration for me. These uh, simulations, and especially the preparation for this simulation, I think helps students to become more mindful of the importance of communication about the perceptions of, of yourself and of others and how words are powerful political and diplomatic tools as well. Throughout this course, uh, the students learn about diplomatic negotiations, how to compromise, but most importantly, they learn how to convey ideas, interests, how to share priorities, and how to come to common grounds, actually, with others that have different types of interests and different understanding of politics or even of priorities. It helps in learning about international politics in the sense that you understand the importance of taking the other's interest uh, into account and to factor that in the way you convey your own priorities and interest. From my point of view, it's also great 
to be uh, supervising that course because I also need to adapt to different styles of students and different different types of cohort as well. Students come from, as in most universities, students at bishops come from very different backgrounds. They might be coming from South Korea, from uh, Burundi, from the Eastern Townships. So they have their own very specific experience in their own countries and their own learning style. And even to get them to communicate with each other and to be mindful of the other referent is quite useful because that also reflects the work at the UN. The work at the UN is very much having people coming from all the countries in the world with different types of background, different interests, different priorities, and coming together to agree on action solutions on different types of international problems. It also uh, entails identifying the same types of problems, defining it the same way, and finding common solutions to address them. So it, it really mimics the international politics in that sense. And again, um, the importance of not only uh, written communication, how each word is politically loaded, but also how, how one talks to the others, how one conveys those priorities orally, the tones that are used, the approach, body language, all of those subtle types of actions that can be taken, that can make, can, that can make quite a difference in the diplomatic world. Well, you are a busy woman, educator, researcher, UN consultant, model UN coach, and the list goes on. Uh, let me switch gears to some of your other work, which has focused on women, peace, and security. Women, peace, and security has been a big topic at the UN, and we're currently co-authoring a piece on uh, gender training for IPI. But how has the whole women, peace, and security wave impacted the work that you do as a UN expert? Well, it came to me, especially in the world of peacekeeping intelligence, that with regards to intelligence, there were not a lot of studies looking at gender and intelligence as such, and of course, even less on gender and, and peacekeeping intelligence. Two things to me that are big gaps in understanding how intelligence is done. One, from an organization point of view, I think there needs to be a clear understanding on how gender plays a role in the recruitment of peacekeeping intelligence analysts and the extent to which gender is taken into account in the training of analysts. So for example, these are those cliches and stereotypes that women should be hired as peacekeeping intelligence analysts because they are better at approaching uh, other women, that women can talk to 100% of the population, whereas men, it's more difficult for men to approach women in certain contexts. And although this information is circulated around and even taken as a fact, uh, when you go in the field, you see there's much more nuances. It depends on who the woman is. And there are many identity factors that will matter in approaching the local population, including uh, women approaching other women. If I can, uh, for example, use the cliche of being married or being a mother as an asset to approach other women in more conservative contexts. This is a, a, an anecdote or even an advice that we give to young scholars traveling around saying, maybe you should wear a ring, say that you're married, say that you, have, you will have children, you will bond more easily with the local population. But it's actually not true depending on the context. Uh, mm. uh, myself, in some contexts, indeed, the fact of being married and having kids did facilitate the approach of some women. Other thoughts um, that I was completely nuts to be so far away from my husband <laughs> and even more 
hard to have left my kids at home with a man. So I looked, it actually discredited me. To be married and have children actually prevented me from speaking to some women who thought I didn't have a judgment at all to be so far away from my family. So these are not automatic. And I think these are stereotypes we need to debunk on a more professional base. There's no automatic link that if you're a woman, you'll be able to approach other women. And I think, and we say that in our, in our piece, but I think there's even a greater emphasis to be put in research on intelligence and gender that in any case, you need someone who's trained in human intelligence to approach the, the local population in any case. There's a training to do. There's a way to talk to people. And that does not come from being a woman. That comes from being trained and to have the right professional background for it. I think there's also a need to understand the way the information is in itself gendered. You will see in some report that gender is when you talk about women who are mothers, sisters or daughters, there's unconscious biases against that type of information. So the information is gendered in a way that orients the analysis, that orients what to do with that information. And that needs to be complicated. I think there needs to be greater understanding how gender intersects with a a broader range of identity factors and to explore the impact of that interactions with the type of information that is acquired and the sense we make of it. Alors, Sarah Myriam, on va travailler étroitement ensemble pour les trois prochaines années avec le réseau d'analyse stratégique qui est un réseau financé par le ministère de la Défense avec le programme MINDS. C'est un réseau francophone sur la coopération en matière de sécurité internationale. Alors, je vais te poser comme question, le fait d'être une chercheure francophone sur le terrain, est-ce que ça t'apporte des avantages concrets ou dans un contexte onusien ou dans, ton, dans tes voyages de terrain? Oui, bon, d'abord, la, la France est une ancienne puissance coloniale et puis le français est une langue officielle en plusieurs pays d'Afrique, dont les pays qui sont états hauts d'opérations de la paix. Donc, effectivement, ça peut aider à mieux comprendre le terrain déjà de parler une des une des langues officielles euh, du pays. Le français est également une langue officielle à l'ONU, donc euh, ça aide également euh, dans les interactions avec le, le, le personnel onusien. Mais je pense que plus largement, euh, c'est le fait de parler plusieurs langues aident de toute façon, dans le sens où ça nous permet d'avoir un lexique plus large, mais aussi des références aussi plus, plus vastes, et ça aide à, à mieux comprendre aussi les autres. Je pense que, bon, évidemment, le fait d'être francophone, il y a une certaine appartenance à une plus large communauté. Je pense qu'il y a 88 États francophones, donc ça, c'est une, ça, ça peut aider aussi donc, à comprendre différents contextes. Je crois que ce qui m'aide le plus d'être francophone quand je suis sur le terrain des États hôtes, c'est le fait d'être une francophone issue d'une, d'une minorité. Une minorité voulant dire une minorité, par exemple, en Amérique du Nord, au Québec. Et je crois que le fait d'être une Québécoise, donc surtout le fait d'être une francophone dans un, un, un océan comme on dit, anglophone sur le continent, ça me permet, moi, de percevoir certaines interactions différemment, puis d'être perçue également différemment. Surtout lorsque je voyage dans des pays qui ont été colonisés, que ce soit par la France, la Belgique, mais, mais même aussi l'Angleterre. Je pense qu'il y a une, y a une différente approche, le fait d'être issu d'un, d'un type de minorité. On rencontre encore sur le terrain des discours civilisationnistes. Et je pense que le fait d'être une francophone dans un endroit minoritaire, ça me rend particulièrement sensible à ça. Il y a encore des agents sur place 
qui se pensent, qui se montrent comme détenteurs d'une supériorité culturelle. Et donc, le fait d'être francophone me permet peut-être de percevoir ça de façon plus claire. Peut-être aussi de nuancer certains discours euh, aussi et de, de, de capter différentes sensibilités sur le terrain par rapport à cette, euh, cette attitude-là, disons, de, de supériorité euh, culturelle aussi, euh, de voir certaines nuances dans les tons, dans les expressions. Mais euh, je dois dire que ça, c'est une posture, effectivement, encore une fois, de francophone, mais de parler, par exemple, arabe et puis de travailler sur le terrain au Mali est certainement un atout également. Donc, de plus de langue, euh, parler euh, mandarin aussi, certainement peut aider mmh. à mieux comprendre les interventions d'acteurs internationaux, euh, de parler russe. En fait, l'idée, c'est de parler plus qu'une langue et selon moi, toujours un atout sur le terrain. Mais évidemment, euh, il se trouve que l'anglais et le français sont deux langues héritées euh, de deux puissances coloniales et euh, ça permet effectivement de, de mieux travailler et d'interagir sur, sur le terrain, euh, certainement en Afrique en tout cas. Mm-hmm. Ben oui, le mandarin, parce que la Chine est devenue un des plus grands contributeurs des missions de l'ONU là, récemment. Et puis, je pense que ce que tu viens de, de dire, ça fait écho à, à ce que tu as dit plus tôt par rapport à la variable identitaire. C'est vrai qu'il y a beaucoup de dimensions qui peuvent jouer. Et donc, la variable linguistique aussi a aussi un impact sur nos travaux. Sarah Myriam, thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. Good luck with your work and I hope to see you very soon. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. This week's R&R features a peacekeeping movie to go along with Sarah Miriam's interview. The movie No Man's Land was made essentially about Bosnia, about peacekeeping in Bosnia, and it's a, it's a pretty brutal satire, a brutal not in the sense that it's violent or excessively violent, but in terms of a sharp take, criticizing the international community's role in the Balkans. And so it's, it's funny, it's moving. I, I recommend highly No Man's Land. The second movie, completely different and far more brutal, is Old Guard. It's a, a new movie on Netflix starring Charlize Theron, uh, who plays an immortal warrior uh, with a band of a few other immortal warriors doing good in the world. And it's, uh, it's really entertaining and a nice distraction from the, the daily grind. The book of the week is actually, for me, one of the, my favorite books of all time. It's an academic book, but it's quite readable. It's also huge, so you can just read whichever chapters you want. And that is Donna Horowitz's Ethnic Groups in Conflict. It presents a social psychological view of ethnic conflict. Now, ethnic conflict comes out of essentially one's own need for self-esteem, which then depends on how one fits into groups, and then that leads to group competition. And I found it really instructive because he uses examples from all over the world, and it's really encyclopedic in so many different ways. So it's a big book but it's, it's really readable, uh, it's fascinating, and I need to reread it again one of these days. So that's Ethnic Groups in Conflict by Donald Harwood. So be well, wash your hands, obviously stay at home as much as you can, and wear a mask. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.